Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 30. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is writer and narrative designer, Kara Ellison. Hello. Here to talk about her, a collection of essays called the Embed With series, I believe it was. That's right. Um, I basically put up like a little Patreon, sort of explaining I wanted to do some kind of travel journalism, but to game developers in the early days of 2014. And then I I was surprised to have it become quite popular, and I managed to make it all around the world eventually, writing about and staying with game developers who make games for a living. Now, you called this several times throughout the essays, embedded journalism, but where did like the original inciting inspiration for this idea come from? Um, that's hard to say. I mean, I guess... I guess I did kind of, I read a lot of kind of old 70s rock journalism that was was kind of basically about following the band around. And I guess it's also kind of magazine journalism in a way, because I know that there's definitely a few interviews up recently, like, I think there's actually an interview with Chris Evans, the Captain America star. And there was this one interview where, like, the person actually said that they thought that they had gone on a date with him instead of it being an interview and stuff like that. And, like, that kind of personal journalism appeals to me because it's not just a 30-minute press junket. It's like, how does this person see the world? Like, let me kind of go and spend some time in their environment and actually get to know them personally. It's much more interesting to me to do journalism that way than to be in a kind of cubicle at E3 uh, asking a set of questions overlooked by a PR. So that was why I did it. Try and get them in their natural environment? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I think Kieran Gillen in his introduction to the book says I'm kind of like a blue-hair-dyed David Attenborough or something. But, I I mean, obviously that's kind of um, a weird way to put it. I think... I think I'd kind of more, I'd describe it more as being kind of just like a very personal journalism where it's more like a kind of cooperative thing where you both kind of agree to participate and you both kind of agree to be very honest about what's happening. So that was what was nice about it. I mentioned that the fact that you try to get them in their element is because in many of the essays, a setting becomes almost as much a character as the subject themselves. That's right. I just thought it was very important to paint a picture of what was different about that place or what seemed unique about it or what seemed like a thing that was important to you uh, define that place so that you got like a sense of uh, maybe how that was influencing the person's work or how it was influencing my outlook. I think it's very important to kind of try to disclose, as a journalist anyway, what your environment is like and like exactly what specifically it is that you're feeling um, and why. And I think that that kind of transparency is very useful to me when I'm reading about something. So I think that's why I, I definitely was interested in writing more about the environment as well as about the people that I was meeting. Not just the specific environment, because you have some lovely pictures of random doors and walls. 
of the various locations in London, but it was in the uh, Catherine Neal and Harvey Smith in bed with essay where you really get a sense of like why France seems to be different than the other locations that you've discussed previously saying there is a sense in France that everyone has a right to joy and that art helps spread this joy. Yeah. I mean, it was quite an interesting realization for me. I, we went to this, I think I mentioned it in the book where we went to this like little kind of fair that takes place in Saint Denis that Catherine took me to and a lot of like the I mean there were a lot of analog games available there that had been like sort of lovingly handcrafted by people like obviously local people for children to just play with like kind of just like putting the the ball in like the whole kind of games and or or, or and then like uh, a thing would light up or like a little tune would play for example and it just seemed to me like you know, the French government obviously funds this kind of cultural thing and think, thinks that it's incredibly important and, you know, encourages families to come out to this stuff. And they, they encourage families to enjoy food together. And and I think it's really important to kind of point out that France does have this very unique approach to culture and investment in culture that not many other countries do. And it, it just made me think, you know, maybe maybe joy is a human right and maybe the rest of us are just doing it wrong and i think think that's kind of relevant to art and video games in particular if we look at how much there's a focus on the the fact that games should be fun which i don't, don't necessarily agree with but obviously games are often like there's an emphasis on them being fun then you can start to think about games as being maybe like actually a human right like people people should be investing more time and money into them. And I certainly do believe that. Uh, quote here, France thinks everyone has the right to play. Yes, I think it's true. I mean, only only in certain very strict ways, of course, because French, France has a very strict outlook on what is art and what is culture. And uh, obviously, notoriously, they are very, very strict about whether things are in French language or not. So I think there's actually a quotient of songs on the radio, for example, that have to be in French. So there's obviously a very strict kind of outlook in France on what art is, and I'm not entirely sure video games encompass that entirely. But yeah, I think they're getting there, though. They have a museum in Paris that's dedicated purely to video games and digital art, which I think is very interesting. And you actually started in England, you went to, or at least, I assume these essays were in chronological order. Yes, they were. Because the way that you published them originally, is that you jumped to California, jumped to France, jumped back to California. It seems like you put a lot of strain on yourself to do it like this, rather than... Yeah, I mean, so a lot of it was to do with logistics, because... So I, I'd done a silly thing, which was really not think about whether, firstly, whether I was making myself homeless, which I obviously did by accident when I put up this project. And then I did another silly thing, which was forget that I had committed myself to some video game festivals. So the reason I went to France in the middle of being with, in the middle of California was that I had to go to Germany to participate in a games festival there called the Amazed Festival, because um, I promised that I would go. So I, I went to Berlin, and then I dropped by Paris on my way back 
to California because I wasn't finished in California because I really badly wanted to write about Liz Ryerson. So yeah, it was, I mean, I, I did do a lot of travel in a very short amount of time and it was quite physically difficult, but it was also very psychologically difficult in the end. I mean, I think I was really feeling it around about August time. I was just really tired. One of those things you look back on and you're glad you did it afterwards, but in the middle of it, you're wondering, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah, no, I did think very often, what the hell am I doing here? What am I, you know, how long can I keep this up for? And I guess in the end, I thought a year was a nice amount of time. I guess also if I'd had to go for longer than a year, I just think I would have gone a bit nuts, you know, like I think for sure I would have felt like even more unstable than I already was feeling by December when I got to Australia. But yeah, it was quite a difficult thing and I wasn't expecting it to be difficult because I was incredibly naive. <laughs> and the way you uh, structure these essays is that instead of like trying to be like an all-compassing view of this person, like to give a full portrait, it's more like a quick sketch that, that's highly detailed about a single element of this person or their work. Yeah. I know there's not much of a question in there, but I'm just... Yeah. I mean, I I certainly feel like... I mean, one of my views about being a critic in particular is that our job is not necessarily to give, like, the objective overview, because I don't think that's possible, because everyone has a view from somewhere, obviously, and all of our biases play into that view. But I think one of our jobs is to provide like a kind of consistent outlook that people can kind of orientate themselves around so they can sort of they can kind of use your perspective as a way of like kind of figuring out where they lie and what what their opinion is and then also I think that it's important to read around your subject I mean I don't want my portrait of Liz Ryerson for example to be the only one that you read I would rather that you read other people's perspectives on her work as well to get a better kind of view of, of what her work is about because I don't want my work to be the only thing that you read so I think it's it's important for me to just be very honest about how I'm approaching things and why and then I think that the reader can make up their mind about whether that's enough for them or not and whether they can actually get a grip on like the subject matter that way or whether they need to seek more sources so I think for certain I also try not to do too much because I'm kind of aware of the fact that I mean particularly on the internet like being concise and short is much more favored and I could have written like you know 5,000 more words than I'd already written about practically everyone but I'm, I'm kind of aware that people don't want to spend like their entire year just writing something that I reading something that I wrote. So I tried to sort of choose the thing that was most interesting to me and then write about that. It also comes to a point, it says, how much are you actually adding with those extra thousand words? Exactly. And I mean, people are very quick to accuse me of being self-indulgent very often, but I do look very carefully at the structure of what I'm writing and it has to please me. And I think that's very important as a writer. You have to write for yourself and think, is this adding something or is it just becoming interminable to read? And I mean, often with my own work, I, I like edit stuff out and cut stuff out. 
but with this project, I found that it was very much more useful to do a kind of beat poet, sort of Jack Kerouac style, just spit out how you feel right then and then, you know, see if it's any good. And usually it was fine and I could put it up. Some pieces were more heavily edited. I mean, obviously, I was so afraid about my first post and I thought that all my Patreon subscribers would unsubscribe about my first post. So I worried over that for, you know, a week longer than I did with most of the other essays because I felt like the first one was really important. It's interesting that you use the phrase self-indulgent because when I was sitting down to write these questions for the interview, I thought, I haven't read these essays in over a year because I read them as they came out. So I said, so I started perusing through the ebook, and then I got to around the halfway point in the middle of the Liz Ryerson piece. And he says, oh, here's two pages that are basically asking every question I, on my sheet. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you, you start going on if I can just quote liberally here, part of me is upset, nervous about the idea, the idea that I might be putting emphasis on her, the idea that I might be changing her idea of who she is. Since the beginning of this project, there's been a lot of issues I've been worried about. There's the idea that I'm including some people and excluding others, the idea that I might be making a canon if one can be ever so egotistical as to think that what you're doing is relevant, the anxiety, sometimes guilt, over my distance to the people I am writing about. If there's any distance at all when I arrive. There isn't by the time I have left, and it bothers me. You go on and on about various interesting issues, about the intersection between writer and subject, between what is true and what is performative, what is fake, and what is really there, and whether it matters. Yeah, I mean, it really shook me up, actually, when I started to think particularly about that when I got to Liz, because... Harvey Smith told me to watch Almost Famous because he thought it it would be relevant and I'd never seen it. And in Almost Famous, there's the Lester Bangs character who, you know, he's on the phone to the main character who's supposed to be Cameron Crowe at the time who writes for, who wrote for Rolling Stone. And, you know, Lester Bangs, the famous music journalist, tells Cameron Crowe that, like, he can't become friends with the band and that it's going to ruin his outlook on things and like you know it's not your job to be cool it's their job to be cool and there's all sorts of like issues of objectivity in there that really messed me up I I felt very I felt very guilty I, I think and I felt very conflicted for a long time about my position and whether it was anything were my questions leading Liz to make these life decisions. I think by the time I left Liz, she decided to do something more with her music rather than with games. And I felt really conflicted about it. Certainly, I felt like had had I have my questions and my comments on her music made her feel this way. I mean, are we losing something from games if we lose Liz? And is this my fault? And I mean, in the end, I did decide that that was really egotistical. Of course, Liz had made these decisions by herself. She probably thought about them for a long time before I got there. So, I mean, yeah, there's a certain amount of like you have to weigh up exactly how important you are. And often I like to um, decide that I'm unimportant because, I mean, my job is just to write down what I thought about them and hopefully it wouldn't be too offensive and so you know that was in the end what I did but certainly Almost Famous really messed me up I think I actually disagree with a lot of the the ways that the journalists approach things in that film certainly but 
I feel like in the end, we can have lots of different kinds of journalism. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the like old white dude objectivity stance. And it doesn't need to be my weird gonzo personal journalism stance. It can be all of those things and more. So it doesn't actually just need to be one thing. And I think that that was the comforting thing that I kind of came to the conclusion of. That's more on a darker, bigger feel of your influence, but on the smaller idea of just like what is true, the we've shown that the act of observing something changes it. So are you getting the truth out of it? And does that matter from observing it? Yeah, I mean, certainly I... I did feel like, you know, this Star Trek prime directive thing, I guess. I certainly observing something is changing it. And even the, the idea that you're being watched in some way or that you're being surveyed, which obviously has to happen. You can't surveil someone without their permission. That's just really unethical. But yeah, like the idea that you're being watched or your movements are being written down. Obviously, those things are changing the way you think about yourself and the way that you perform your abilities and your life, I guess. And I mean, also it was hard psychologically for the people who I was writing about, obviously, because they were, there's obviously a pressure to be your best person. And which is why I kind of, I said, like, I think when I covered Carla Zamanja that it took her a real, like a, a good amount of time to kind of not feel nervous around me and to kind of open up and just say what she thought. It took me like a good week, I think, to even like have her feel like she could just say what she wanted. And that's actually the value of the embedded journalism thing is that you can get people to trust you eventually. And you do have the time to spend actually having someone get to know you. And it's not it eventually, hopefully, ends up not being so intrusive and you end up being a person that they can trust. And I think trust is something that's really valuable between an interviewer and an interviewee. How much are you performing for me right now? <laughs> I'm definitely being more articulate than I normally would be. <laughs> I will be so grateful for that in the editing booth. <laughs> but yeah, it seems like because there isn't, we don't get a whole lot of this embedded journalism or even just long form interview style with no one looking over your shoulder. So there's the idea that it is more honest. But I'm wondering, but since we don't like have a whole lot of experience in the game sphere of this type of work, is what comes out of it ultimately? What do you think you manage to pull from the words and the experience of being around these artists? Well, I certainly felt like I came away thinking, I mean, I think I, I think a lot of people think that being a game creator is an identity and that it's a very important identity in the game sphere and that if, if you stop creating games, you stop existing. And I think that's quite a damaging way to think about yourself. And I certainly felt that way about myself as a, as a writer. And I, I'm, I'm still kind of struggling with it now because I now all my writing is done in private because I write for, I'm contracted as a writer and I can't talk about my work often until they decide that it's okay. So I kind of struggle with it now because do I as a writer still exist if no one is responding to my work? Because before I would put my work up on the internet and then I would get an immediate response that was very personally gratifying. 
and did kind of validate a lot of things I thought about myself. But now that I don't do that, it's actually quite hard for me or it's been harder for me to kind of regard myself as being the same thing as I was before, which was a writer. And I still am a writer, but it's obviously not as in public as I I was previously. I'm more cloistered. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that I definitely learned from all of the people that I covered who I consider extremely talented, they have very rich lives outside of video games that I think are that, that inform their art that I think are very important to a concept of, of your own identity. I think certainly participating in things that don't have anything to do with video games are incredibly informative for actually making video games. But also, you know, that you, if you stop creating games, it doesn't matter. You know, you're still a game creator. You still made a game. It's not an all-encompassing thing. Because I think if you start thinking that, oh, I'm a great game creator, that's who I am, and then for whatever reason you're not able to make games anymore, so you get very ill, or perhaps your your circumstances change and you have to take a different job, that doesn't mean that you're less of a person. It still means that you're, you know, a whole person. And I think the ability to create something doesn't make you into something else it's just I think it's slightly in everyone it's just how you do it so yeah I mean that that was the thing that I definitely took away from things if I can go quickly back to that uh long introspection you gave on page 91 the other part of it was how did you choose who to actually bring into this project who to go and embed yourself with I mean, partly it was to do with who was free and who wasn't in the middle of a project that, or who wasn't in, in the middle of crunch. Or, I mean, a lot of it was to do with who I could go and visit mixed with my own personal interest because I really wanted to go and see people who were making things that weren't the usual thing. I didn't want to go and see someone, for example, who was just making another platformer or like making something that was cannibalizing old game systems like outright. I, I wanted to visit people who were taking unusual themes and making games out of them or I certainly just wanted to I wanted to go and visit people who made me feel like I was excited. I mean, I asked lots of people. I asked like Mitu Kandeker, but she was busy. I I asked I asked Pietro Riva, who I think is based in Italy. If I could go visit, he wasn't available. I think he was making Wheels of Aurelia at the time, and he wasn't available. So I mean, there are a number of people who I did want to visit that I couldn't go and see, who unfortunately, you know, they were just things were. I mean, I really badly wanted to go to Scotland. My I wanted to go to Edinburgh, my hometown, and um, visit Jack King Spooner, but Jack King Spooner was just like, you want to do what? Why would you do that? No, you, of course you can't come and stay. What a ridiculous idea. And like, I got a few kind of responses like that, and they're right. It, it is a ridiculous idea. It's an intrusion. In many ways, it's kind of weird. So yeah, I mean, I think they were totally right to say no. But yeah, I mean, a lot of it was to, it was every month I basically got in a panic about where I was going next. It was entire, entirely unplanned. But for the artists that, that you narrowed it down to to ask in the first place, how did you choose them? Um, It was just like a personal curiosity, I guess, mixed with my 
kind of firm belief that I think that we should be covering more people who don't speak English as their native language or who who like who are marginalized in some way, people who we haven't heard from, who haven't spoken about themselves before. I mean a lot a lot of the people I covered were people who I was really excited to know more about myself and who I was frustrated weren't getting any coverage, I guess. So I did have like quite a few people and I was very aware that I wanted to cover more women than men. So I guess in the end I did do that um by quite a wide margin. I covered much more women than I did men, which I think is much easier than people think it is. Can you go into some of the people that you talked about in the book? Like you mean each ind- individual person? Well, there are too many just to go them. Just rattle off a few what what you got out of them, for example. Sir, I mean I think one of the most interesting things about Tim Rogers is that no one really talks about him as as a game designer or a game creator, which frustrated me initially, which is why I went to see him. He's an interesting person, obviously. From the outset, he's more like a social network of writers than he is a person. (laughs) No, that's not true. He's a lovely person, a whole human being. But he was just really interesting because he, he is just very outright about his taste and isn't has no fear about being into things that people might think are weird or strange. I really respect that. I think that's part of what makes an interesting creator is having very specific taste and sticking to it. And I think that's really cool. And also he's an, an amazing critic, which I think informs his work in a really interesting way. He spent years and years kind of criticizing games um, in a really amazing way. And a lot of his work is now taught in university courses, which is, I think is really cool because they're just so precise and so well-written. But yeah, I mean, Tim is also like, his criticism is very stylistic, but it's also very in detail. And that's the way he designs games, which I think is very informative about, you know, the my time spent with him was just really interesting because of that, those two things coming together. Yeah, you mentioned Catherine Neal, Harvey Smith, and Catherine Neal were interesting to go together because they're both very political people. Harvey Smith, I think his work is hugely informed by how empathetic a person he is. His work is informed by a deep empathy for people who live in poverty, people who have troubled lives. I think that's in part because of his upbringing, but also because I think Harvey came to writing late. And and it opened up this whole new avenue of wonderful stuff for him in the world. And that's very inspirational in many ways. I think that's, I mean, he started in games when he was 30 years old, which I think we would all consider quite old now. But I think that was really amazing. And I think Catherine Neal, yeah, for certain, I feel like Catherine's work has been in so many ways, like completely gutsy, rebellious, Uh, political activism she's the most amazing political activist in games for certain she's done a lot there i think she created a game escape from woomera that took australian arts council funding made this incredible game from made from real interviews of people who were asylum seekers who were put into the escape from uh, put into Woomera and then put into the video game Escape from Woomera, like word for word, their interviews are in there. And yeah, no, I just think that Catherine's work 
is incredible because it started huge arguments near the Australian Parliament. They people started saying, you know, it was it was belittling these people to be put in a, an inferior thing like a video game. Well, that was the leftist argument. The conservative argument in Parliament was that it was embarrassing Australia that this game had been made. But the New York Times interviewed Catherine. I mean, the people were picking this up all over over the world and people in who'd never really played video games were in the comments of these news articles going you know are video games art like can they tell us about our world like you know what does this say about us and it was just really interesting having Catherine talk about these issues and no one knows about her work practically but she's I mean I think she's wonderful as a game developer it's amazing her her team managed to do something like that yeah, definitely. There's so much in the book. I mean, I think um, when I got to Malaysia, for example, and Singapore is really enlightening for, for so many reasons, particularly because so many different types of people live together within, and they all have different religions. And it seems to be that people are very concerned about getting on because of those things. And people are very informed about each other's religions over there. People don't necessarily assimilate, but they try to accommodate each other, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, like, I mean, Brian and Ian over in Singapore said that they they think that dictatorship is actually a good idea and their politics very much inform how they think about their games, um, particularly because they are very active in, or Ian is very active in gay rights. So he's writing gay characters into his game, despite the fact that, despite the fact that he might get into huge amounts of trouble for, for it for, from his own government. So, I mean, a lot of the people that I covered are really amazing people in lots of ways. But I mean, I think if you go and visit practically anyone across the world, they'll have an amazing story to tell. It's just actually spending the time to get to that story. That is significant, I think. After you finished the blog post series, was there the plan to turn it directly into a book? Or how long after did that come about? Um, it was my Patreon backers. They all demanded like a, a copy of it, and and most of the people wanted a print copy because they thought it was like some sort of significant thing that had ha- happened that they wanted to kind of own, and that was amazing. But it was also kind of troublesome for me because I was had to try and kind of figure out how I was going to do it. So eventually, I was like, well, I could put it myself into an ebook format that you I could then give you for free, which I did. And then there was like a fairly significant push amongst lots of people on the internet to have me do a print version, which I looked into for a very long time. And then I I thought, well, what I could do, I guess, is just try to get a publisher to support me to then publish it. And so I, I went to, I used to work for a publisher when I was in a previous life and I basically forwarded, forwarded it to them. And due to their backlog, they took a really long time to read it. But eventually when they did, they really, really liked it and they wanted to publish it. And so they picked it up. So I was just about to put it, put the ebook on sale and then they just like swooped in and, and bought the rights. And now it's being distributed across the world, I guess, from the 19th of November in the UK and from February, I think, in the US. So, yeah, I mean, it was mainly just because people on the Internet bullied me into doing it is the real answer. <laughs> How in in there were you in the process of transferring it into a book, both in e-format and print? Or did you let them just take care Again, of that? Again, sorry? 
So, uh, my sorry, publisher, I let them take care of it mostly. I mean, the editor is a long-time friend of mine who I've worked with before, and I kind of trusted her to make all the big decisions. So she, you know, she decided what she wanted and didn't want. She actually took out a lot of the photographs because they were threatening to make the print copy too long. So actually, the photographs have been heavily reduced, although we have sent money to all of the, the uh, photographers who actually feature in it. Although most of the photographs were actually taken by me, but some of them uh, were taken by Dan Tabar, uh, some by Luis Hernandez, and um, some by Robin Baumgarten. So kind of a an interesting thing to look at, like a... a my journey as edited by someone else but well, yeah, they, they definitely did a good job at it. it's just one thing I noticed in the Tim Rogers uh, embed piece is that you mentioned and here's the music we were listening to colon and that's where a SoundCloud embed was in the blog post but here it's just a blank space and how much of that formatting between blog and book had to alter because there are a lot of links in the PDF version that I know cannot be there in the print version. That's true. Yeah. So like the SoundCloud thing, hopefully I'm, I'm surprised it didn't come through in the ebook version, but I think I sent you like an early copy that I'd edited possibly. Is that true? I got it through Chris. So that is probably true. Yes. So that version is probably kind of inferior to the one that's being sold currently, which should have most of the links in it, which you can like go and look, you know, look at on the internet. Um, if you've got like, if you're reading it, say on a tablet, but yeah, they, we, we basically had to replace a lot of that stuff for the print version. So that version is, is kind of was probably badly edited by me. So that's probably why, but yeah, no, I think it's been quite difficult to actually edit it together, especially because it's been such a multimedia pursuit for certain. So it's one of those things where it's you're not entirely sure what how to how to do it because, you know, like you don't know how many people read the initial one. Yeah, like you have no idea like who the book is actually being aimed at. I mean, who is going to read this book? It's like really hard for me to think about, you know, are people going to be excited to like go on the internet and like chase after all of this loose ends that I mentioned in the book? Who knows? I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing. That's another interesting question of who you were writing these for. We've been talking about who you were writing them about, but what was the audience? How much did you expect them to know or come in and understand about games already that you're alter that you're offering this, alternate perspective of the industry, one that's hidden behind all the gloss and sheen of the AAA. Yeah. I don't, I think the people who ended up reading it were longtime readers of mine who obviously followed me from places like Rock, Paper, Shotgun and, and Your Gamer and The Guardian and a few other places I used to write for and probably Unwinnable as well. And there were also people who are game developers themselves who were really interested in the project and they thought it was something that, I mean, a lot of game developers were reading it and telling me that it was inspiring them to create also, which was really nice to hear about. I feel like, yeah, cer certainly a lot of 
the people who were reading it were making games themselves or were interested in making games. But there were people who turned up who knew nothing about games really and were just there because they really enjoyed just the travel writing, which is kind of cool too. So, I mean, certainly there are a lot of a lot of people who kind of joined, like kept, like I mean, I all of my subscribers kept going up and up. So I mean, I was really lucky in that respect. But I mean, it would be interesting to find out exactly who these people are. I mean, I'm certain that I don't really know. I mean, it was just really interesting. The mix of people I was getting as well was quite good. A lot of women, a lot of people who were, yeah, certainly like people who were always kind of invested in my work anyway, wanted to give me something for this work. So, but yeah, I mean, I sent it to a few people who know nothing about games and they are really into it. So, I mean, it sounds kind of cool. I mean, my publishers certainly don't know very much about games at all, and and they it was really interesting having them kind of appraise uh, my work because they also thought it was really interesting, interesting enough to be a mainstream book at least. So yeah, uh, this is actually kind of unique for this publication interview series we've been doing in that you were writing a book piecemeal. And instead of releasing it all as one big thing, you were writing it bit by bit. So how much did the feedback of each post as they came out influence posts and essays further down the line? That's interesting because I think that's a common crit- – or people would use that as a criticism of Patreon in that they would say, oh, you're just going to adapt your work to get more money and you're going to compromise yourself. But I never, ever, ever did that, and I never find myself wanting to do that. In fact, I very, it, it, I really didn't actually look at how much money I was getting from month to month. Anyway, I didn't look at who was giving me money. I didn't look at how many people were donating or subscribing. And so I didn't actually, I mean, I, I didn't, the only feedback I ever got was very positive and very supportive, but it was mainly from people who were already subscribing. So, I mean, it was quite interesting just seeing people say, oh, you know, I'm a game developer and I just love this and, like, thank you for writing it. But that was pretty much the only kind of feedback I got while I was writing it. So, yeah, I mean, I never really changed anything that I was doing. I wonder what I would have done if people had started slating it or saying that it it was bad or unuseful or that it was not a good piece of work for particular reasons. I wonder if I would have changed it. But as it was, I didn't find myself changing my outlook on how to do it at all, I guess. It was just through experience I started taking more photographs and I started um, putting more music in. Because people people really liked the fact that I was putting music into my posts. And so often people would sort of give me feedback like, you know, I, I really love the little musical sort of additions that you put in, and I, I make playlists of things that you're listening to in your own bad way series, and I thought that was really amazing. So I started making playlists, I guess. But there was nothing in the particular text or the way that I was covering people that actually changed. I mean, yeah, I I obviously would have considered changing had anyone actually had something very negative to say. I mean, I did get, like, it, when I pitched my initial project, I guess I got some negative feedback from, I think it was like an IGN writer or something who said, oh, this, is, this isn't this is journalism or 
this isn't how interviews should be done. Uh, this is like just not useful or something. I can't remember, but like there were quite a, there was like quite a big Twitter backlash. I think the beginning to this project because a lot of journalists felt very threatened by it, which is weird because I mean I just felt like, well I mean it's just I I I don't have a full time staff job anywhere and I don't get any, hardly any money to write what I do, and why shouldn't I use you know, my loyal readership to help me do something more exciting and more interesting and more experimental than what the mainstream sites do or what the, you know, the enthusiast sites do. Because, you know, the only thing I had going for me at the time was that I wasn't under a, on a leash, that I didn't have to answer to an editor, that I didn't have to do what an editor wanted of me, that I didn't have to fulfill like 50 previews a month or whatever I didn't have to do that and so I was like why well, I couldn't why shouldn't I use my remit to do something that they couldn't at all do um, and I think there was a lot of kind of resentment about that for certain the old guard were not particularly happy for me although there were some in the old guard that were I mean obviously Rock Paper Shotgun has always been really supportive and so is the Guardian so that was kind of cool. But I always expected, you know, people like Polygon or, you know, when Polygon started their site, I thought they were going to do this kind of exciting journalism. But I guess they just ended up not doing it or I, I'm not sure what came of it, but it just seemed to me like it was the obvious thing to do. And now I think uh, Kill Screen have put up a Kickstarter saying that they're going to do exactly the same thing as me, except with their writers and photographers and that's really interesting to me because it's like I've kind of been used as a sort of litmus test to see if that would work I and mean, I took all the risk and now people are like oh cool well, now we can do it which is cool in its own way but it's also kind of frustrating because I never got like a paid career out of what I did like a you know a salaried career I, I obviously got paid for my work but I would have preferred having like a kind of stable job doing journalism, which I never got to fulfill. So, I mean, perhaps it's just me bitching uselessly about this, but because now I'm totally happy with my job and I really love writing for games themselves. But I mean, it just seems kind of weird that people would exalt my work afterwards without really having done most of the legwork. Or having recognized that I did any of the legwork, I guess. I mean, I was frustrated at the time I was doing it as well, that people weren't more kind of, like, interested in, like, the methodology of it, I guess. But they are now, which is fine. It's kind of cool having had done something. Yeah, it's like that old quotation, I hate writing, but I love having written, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's like pulling teeth, but now that it's on the page, oh, it's so grateful that it's there. Yeah. Mainly because they don't have to do it again. Yeah. But as to these frustrations, it's because about this Kickstarter thing, is like it's something that they're going to do, and you say that it's disappointing that it is in a salaried position. Well, we have you've proved that it can be done as a thing. You haven't proved, and neither has Kicks, and neither has a Kill Screen proved that it can be done as an ongoing salaried thing. That's true. That's still to be proven. And you could actually be vindicated and say, no, it can't. The people interested in this sort of thing isn't big enough to sustain a salary. 
Yeah, I mean, that could totally be true. But, I mean, it does add value, doesn't it, to, like, the way that... I think it adds value to sites, personally. I think that, you know, Kotaku republished one of my essays that I wrote on Nina Freeman. And so it does show that, like, it does, you know, it does bring a readership um, and adds value to larger game sites, this stuff, the wider cultural view in general. But, I mean, you're right. Maybe I am wrong and these things aren't sustainable on a salary basis. But it's like, you know, I mean, obviously... I think for to a certain extent it's just a bigger problem with the like ad kind of stuff in games journalism like the economy of it isn't really sustainable because people are using ad block now so yeah to a, a, a kind of large degree I would say there's a huge problem with paying writers who write on the internet anyway um, Patreon was kind of a stopgap to like trying to help that that kind of situation out but like I don't know I I just felt like when I was doing the Patreon that it was ultimately unsustainable it felt like a kind of scary prospect you know like it it felt like not I don't know it felt definitely like it wasn't like a thing I could do forever Uh, it just felt terrifying basically and I was always scared that people were going to unsubscribe which thankfully they never did but I mean, obviously some people did, but it never, the amount of money I was paid never really went down. So, I mean, I was really grateful for that. But yeah, it was just scary in general. I would have much rather had an employment contract, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) If I could bring this around, because you say it grows these sites and gives them more material to work with, more prestige to work with. But I think it does more than that. It grows the medium. Like, you you say that it brought all that debate in Australia, Catherine Neal's work, about art, can games be art? And several years ago, uh, the entire Twitterade were in uproar over this question because they because someone dared say, no, they can't be, and everyone had to prove them wrong, of course. Yeah. And you have this lovely quote in that same Catherine Neal, Harvey Smith section of the book from a PC Powerplay magazine issue from 2004 – that I feel is relevant, if not exactly on the nose. Despite pleas from certain free-play speakers that the role of independent game development is to fill the niches that are not profitable for the large publishers, there seems to be a long way to go before the notion of independent game development being able to coexist alongside commercial game development is an acceptable mantra. Yeah. And here we are. And the th- not even, I would say, like... Uh, 11 years on, but no, really, several years ago, it became the de facto norm, but someone has to start somewhere. Yeah. And it grow and it grows, and the act of doing things grows itself. You can say, our game's art, and he says, yes, they are, but the only way that it'll ever become true is if you just skip the process and just start doing it, and that's what you did here. You skipped the question and just said, you know what, I'm just going to say they are and move on. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you're right in that that in itself is valuable. I mean, I I think part of what I wanted to do was have this be like a, you know, like a, an, almost like an oral history of like indie game development just in that one year. And obviously I didn't cover every indie game developer across the world, which would have been impossible. But I just wanted to do a kind of like, roaming bard's account of like what exactly was going on and like how people were trying to survive and 
you know, how these things, what was happening, basically. I just wanted to record what was happening because I think that it will be really important in the future. I wanted to have a record of it, you know. Things can get lost. And they can get, you know, they, they can get lost on the internet and people kind of rediscover them ever so often. But I wanted to have like one long piece of work that just said, this is the way that I was finding games at this point and this is what they were like. And obviously that PC Powerplay quotation does show that we have moved on so- somewhat. And um, I just think that's really valuable. I think, you know, we all complain about how games journalism has such a short memory and that, you know, previous writers are totally forgotten, which is sad. But I mean, I certainly think that I operate in the canon of writers who did a lot of legwork for me. And I try to inform myself of that legwork. And I try to be, try to build on whatever it was that was done before. And so I think for certain, it's very valuable. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of work that people have done in games that it's super useful and has been very useful to me and I I just wanted to provide that kind of standing for people in the future I guess to be able to look at a history and say oh this is what happened you know another interesting thing about that quote is the year 2004 and I think back to where I was in 2004 in relation to video games and forget the question being asked I don't have a concept back then I didn't have a concept of an indie game. I didn't have a concept there was anything beyond what was in the store. Yeah, I mean, what- same. I I think in 2004 I was um, ending... I'm not sure I was even playing video games in 2004, come to think of it. I think I'd stopped reading games magazines at that point and I'd started at university and I... Yeah, I'd just been to... I'd, I'd climbed Kilimanjaro... And like had this kind of weird experience where I remember feeling like Lara Croft or something. And I eventually wrote a piece about that for Rock Paper Shotgun. But I stopped playing video games just shortly after that for certain, for maybe a year. And then I met someone at university and then we both loved games. So we both played games for a really long time. But yeah, I don't remember even understanding what an indie game was until much, much later than 2004. So yeah, it must have been a time that it seemed totally implausible that someone could make a polished indie game and become rich from it, you know? I think the fact that you can just breezily say, yeah, I I just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro as an off-handed thing proves that you are living a more interesting life than the rest of us. Well, I mean... (laughs) You don't really get to drop that very many times in your life. You know, it's not relevant. But I just felt like... I think you'd be dropping that every other sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I haven't... I don't know if I've said that very often, but I did write a very useful piece about it for Rock, Paper, Shotgun, which is one of my favorite pieces. I mean, sometimes I look at my old work and really cringe, but that one stands the test of time, I think, simply because it is very real. (laughs) I I feel like games really have formed my life outlook and have had a very good, very positive impact on me as a person. And so I feel like that one piece is quite defining in terms of basically how I wanted to become an adventurer from a very young age, simply because I realized that adventurers could be women simply because of that one game. So, 
It was important to me. Now, because these are publications, I get to ask very interesting things about visual art, and in this case, mostly about the covers. This one is probably one of the most beautiful I've seen out of any of the books I've interviewed about so far. Yeah, I mean... This was done by Irene Coe? That's is that right. right. Yeah, Irene and I met when I was living with Tim in San Francisco, and she, I think, had heard of me because of Unwinnable, and she'd read my writing, and she was a fan, and I'd seen her write, her her drawing on Unwinnable, and I'd, I'd visited her Tumblr and just thought... She, she was an incredible artist. I just I couldn't understand why she wasn't doing it full time or that she hadn't really got like a, a stable career in it at that point and I just couldn't understand it and I so I, I arranged to meet up with her and she's just an incredible person and just funny and interesting and just like fiery and like as a person just so passionate about things and she was just such an inspiration and she had a huge influence on the the project itself because she did several illustrations for me, which I paid her for. And so in the end, it kind of obviously made sense to me that I would ask her to do the cover for the book because she knew me very well. And she, I think that she has a really amazing way of interpreting whatever I write down to become an illustration. And so, yeah, she just, I guess she just pulled it out and there it was and it was beautiful I mean, Irene, I was so fortunate to meet Irene because it was really obvious to me she was going to become very famous very quickly. And I met her at a time where she hadn't been discovered, per se. And so, you know, it was kind of obvious to me she was really talented and people were going to notice soon. And she was picked up by DC and then she was picked up by Marvel because I introduced her to Kieran Gillen and I said, hey, Kieran, Irene should definitely be doing more stuff for Marvel. And he he agreed so, I mean, that was kind of cool was to be able to just say to people, like, hey, you should be paying more attention to this person and her art. And I think that she should be employed for more things. And I was constantly trying to advertise her work, like lots of different sort of ways. So, yeah, for certain, I wanted to, I guess, introduce people to her art more. And uh, it just made sense to me that she would do the cover. I mean, I, I'm not sure she would have time anymore to do something like that. She, she just kind of, she obviously just did it to me, did it for me as this kind of favor because, you know, we're really good friends. But I mean, I'm not sure. She's just so busy now and so, you know, important and has become much more important than me, I think that she, you know, she probably wouldn't have time to do any book covers anymore. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, the image of your face and body being split open and inside you just see game controllers and teddy bears and liquor bottles and bras and whatever other things you might get have to deal with from sleeping on a couch for over a year. Yeah, I mean, she obviously saw me sleeping on the couch as well. So, I mean, she did have a pretty good idea of exactly what was there and what was happening to me, which is kind of funny. Is there anything else you'd like to mention about this book? Anything that you feel I haven't touched upon for whatever reason? 
No, I think that you pretty much nailed it. I mean, <laughs> I think this has actually been like a very structured interview, which I think is kind of amazing because people just usually want me to ramble on about whatever I think. That's what I hope for people to do, to ramble on, because that's when all the interesting stuff comes out. That's you should true. know that. I do know that. But I mean, I sometimes even I lose my place. So, I mean, it's nice to have someone who has like a very, who's obviously read the book very in depth as well. I mean... I love having my stuff posted back to me because it makes definite, definite surprise that anyone would care that I'd written something. <laughs> I, I wonder how many issues my other interviewees are going to come up with because I didn't do that for them. But it's just you perfectly framed my questions much better than I did within your very books. It was like, oh. There's no point in me trying to say it because I'm just going to be awful at it. Well, I mean, journalists interviewing journalists are always going to be somewhat metatextual, right? So, Yes, it's, that's the one thing I want to say. Your writing style is just so easy to read. It's just so nice and breezy. Although I will say it is much, much easier to read in PDF format than it was on Tumblr. Oh, I think for it's certain. Just, I think it's just the infinite scroll just sort of has this little thing in your brain. It says, oh my god, this is Go, this is going so slowly, while in a book, the act of turning a page, or at least swiping a page, has, like, this good feeling to it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, I feel like Tumblr was just a last-minute choice that was probably one of the worst choices I made. <laughs> because it, editing text in Tumblr is horrible. I think I actually lost, like, three versions of, like, the original post I was going to put up, up on Tumblr, um, and it was really stressful editing everything onto Tumblr. So, yeah, and I, I definitely would not do that ever again. I would definitely think more about, like, maybe even doing a WordPress site for travel writing because it was just such a freaking terrible thing to wrangle words in. Yeah, for certain, it was really annoying. <laughs> well, and with that, I think I'm going to leave you with one last question that has nothing to do with anything else we've talked about. Tara, what is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, everyone always asks me this, and I don't really know. Oh, God. So, I think it's something, I mean, I think it's probably Full Throttle, which is a LucasArts game, which I think I learned a lot about video games just from that one game, because now I think about it in so many different different ways you know like the ways that a designer might think about a game whereas before I only thought about it and how how magical the dialogue was how funny it was how charming it was how neat the story was like I always thought about it in terms of you know the like the the art of it was like colorful and amazing the world was like interesting and like this silly bit with the bunnies the mechanical bunnies hopping across the minefield was always very funny to me but now as a designer I think about it more in terms of wow they made they made a woman character who wasn't necessarily a love interest it was a platonic relationship between the main character and Maureen Corley which I thought was great and she, it turns out Ma Maureen Corley she partway through the game she becomes a game boss and then she then she becomes like a high-powered businesswoman and she's very kind of capable and interesting and has like this really interesting hist a personal history. And I just really admire the way that she was written. But also the game has this particular outlook 
the way that it was done was really interesting. So it's like the traditional adventure game kind of interface, but your cursor can like turn it. You can you can basically click on several things that the main character Ben can do on the landscape, and they're done in the kind of traditional a traditional kind of Hell's Angel art kind of way where it has this skull which you can click to like look at stuff and then there's a there's a boot that you can click to like kick stuff and then there's a fist that you can click to punch stuff and that says a lot about Ben as a character I think just the the way that you interface with the world tells you something about Ben himself and as a designer I really admire the ability that that game has to tell you about who he is without really actually using any dialogue at all. You immediately know the kind of gar- the guy that he is, which is that he can talk, you know, he can talk to people, but he also can kick and punch them in the face. And those are his preferred methods, you know? So I th- I just think that that's really great. And I just, that's why I really love that game. And you said you were going to have difficulty with the question. It was, <laughs> it's always really hard to choose one game though. It's just one of those questions that when it comes up... I mean, I, I sometimes I say Brendan Chung's 30 Flights of Loving. I, I just love that game because it just kind of rewired the way I thought about video games. But yeah, sometimes it's Half-Life, sometimes it's other games. Who even knows what my favorite game is? <laughs> to me, it's not so much the actual answer because... Or the game itself, but it's the answer that's interesting. Because when you're trying to figure so, hear something out, something out of left field that can be revealing about how they think is just as in, it can be even more interesting than going on and on about a game that everyone's heard about. It's why they chose that. Yeah. It reveals. Yeah. I guess it's because I've grown a lot as a designer in the past year, and I, I like learning more about my craft. So I obviously come back to games that I really love and try to understand more about how they were designed rather than why I like them because as a critic you have to kind of examine yourself and why you like something but as a designer you have to think about the hard questions which is how did they get there like how did they do that why did they think that way that becomes the most important question for certain so yeah well thank you for coming on and speaking with me today yeah, no problem. It was really fun. And for your book isn't isn't officially out yet, correct? It's not officially out. It's out in the UK on the nineteenth of November, but it, I think it actually comes out on like US Amazon in February, which is quite a long wait. But you can order direct from my publisher if you like. Well, for our UK listeners, from the publishing of this podcast, you only have to wait a few days. For the US, you're shit out of luck. You got to wait three months. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could come to the New York launch of event on the 23rd if you're in the New York area, and I'll have books to sell you. But apart from that, I have... Uh, I might do that just for the... I might do that. The 23rd of November? Yeah, you should come along to Baby uh, Castle. Uh, it's, a, it's a Thanksgiving week. It is. Might be diff- I might do that just for fun. You should do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're listening, if you liked what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. If you didn't like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. I would love to have even one rating on iTunes at this point. And if you also like this podcast and enjoy all our other projects at Critical Distance, we have a Patreon, and if you're able to, we would love if you could support us at patreon.com slash critdistance. Thank you all for listening, and thank you, Kara, again for coming on. It's been a blast.